Happy New Year to you. I think a lot of you or a lot of people in general are just happy that 2020 is in the rearview mirror. A lot of people hope that 2021 will be a better year. We're just three days into it, so it's a bit hard to tell. I can tell you that this morning here at the Clova, uh, we have had a power outage, and then also the furnace is not working here. So, so far, things aren't looking great, but I, I do have lots of confidence coming into this year. I wanted to bring a message today that will help prepare us for whatever it is that might come in 2021. You will know that throughout the month of December, we spent our time exploring the themes of Advent, hope, peace, love, and joy. And then last week, uh, we returned to the theme of hope in a message that I entitled Hope Redux or Hope Revived or Revisited. And uh, we're going to do something similar today with the idea of peace. In fact, we're going to do this for all four of the themes of Advent. As I said last week, I doubt that you got overfilled with hope, or I doubt that you are overfilled with hope. And so it's a good thing to return to that. And I think the same is true really with all of those themes, hope, peace, love, and joy. So if you do have a Bible with you today, I want to encourage you and invite you to open it to Psalm 46. Uh, as I said last week, this wasn't really the original plan. Uh, we are going to be launching into a new series in the book of Daniel later in January. But as part of our Advent series, I put out some devotionals on those themes and spent time exploring those themes as we find them in the book of Psalms. And my own heart and soul were ministered to as I looked at those Psalms that I thought it would be good to kind of flesh that out a little bit more. So we're looking at peace. Now, when we looked at the idea of peace back in December, we looked at the better peace that Jesus gives us. And then we divided our time between the external or relational peace that we enjoy or that we ought to have and experience with others in relationship. And we also looked at the inner peace that we can experience and enjoy in Christ. This psalm has something to teach us about the inner peace that we ought to experience. And so I want to begin just by reading Psalm 46 for you. This is God's word, and this is what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we, w- we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Well, this psalm breaks easily into three sections, and you can see the divisions in the psalm by just noting the little word Selah or Selah that appears at the end of verse three, at the end of verse seven, and then again at the end of verse 11. Now, I'm sure I've covered this ground with you before, but commentators aren't 100% sure what the function of that little word was in the Psalms. You run into it in numerous Psalms. Some think it was a notation that a musical interlude would take place at this point in the Psalm. Now, I spent my teenage years as a headbanger, so I kind of picture this as the moment that the drums would kick in or maybe as the moment that a guitar solo would kind of break out. I think Tim would be really happy if if we discovered that was in fact the case. Uh, Maybe today this would be a reference to the beat drop. So maybe it's a musical notation. Others think that the term referred to a sort of contemplative pause that was supposed to take place as you read or recited or sung the psalm. So in this psalm, you would sing or recite the first three verses and then sort of quietly reflect on what it was that you just sang or recited. It's possible that the term refers to both of those things, a sort of musical interlude that would allow you a time of reflection. Well, in any case, the psalm does break nicely into these three sections. Verses 1 help us see the peace we can enjoy regardless of what might happen. Verses 4 to 7 help us understand the peace that is ours because of what is happening. And then verses 8 to 11 help us understand the peace we experience because of what will happen. Now, I'm indebted to Dale Ralph Davis for helping me see the way the psalm breaks down like that. So we're going to consider this psalm under those three headings. So firstly, then, I would say that we can experience peace regardless of what might happen. This is what we see in the first three verses of the psalm. Verse 1 begins by saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then verses 2 and 3 say this, Therefore, or, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. These verses deal with the hypothetical. In fact, these verses deal with the kind of peace we can experience even in the face of the seemingly impossible. So all through the Psalms, as you read through them, you will find statements like this. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. In Psalm 96, it says it this way. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Psalm 104 says something similar. He has set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. And those verses describe the basic stability of the world we live in. God upholds it. He has made it secure. It shall not be moved. But then this psalm describes what the world often feels like. It does at times feel like the world is giving way, doesn't it? It does feel like the waters are roaring and foaming and that the mountains are trembling. 2020 was a year like that, wasn't it? 
I mean, all of those things that at one time seemed so solid and stable and secure now seem so fragile. I mean, think back just a year. People rolled into 2020 with their, you know, 2020 glasses on and their 2020 vision. And they crawled out of 2020 with their tail between their legs. We sometimes talk about our hopes for what the new year might bring. We talk about our hopes of the unprecedented things that will happen. All the unprecedented things that the future might bring. But I think right now we would all settle for that which is precedented. Right? That which we know and have experienced before. And the world feels like it has shifted in the last year. Now, obviously, all of the COVID stuff has made the world feel like a more vulnerable place. We've been reminded of our mortality in a way that many people hadn't had to think about before. We've received an education about our susceptibility to things that are beyond our control. But even beyond all of the COVID stuff, there are lots of areas where it feels like the solid ground underneath our feet has shifted. It feels as though the earth has given way. Just in case you didn't know this, there is a massive sexual revolution taking place all around us. Last February's Super Bowl included a halftime show featuring scantily clad singers showing off their pole dancing skills as part of it. And those who criticized it as being inappropriate were obviously just against all the advances of feminism and female empowerment. Writhing around in your underwear on a stage is the essence of female empowerment, we're told. Don't you know anything? And that's really just a glimpse of the changing attitudes towards sexual expression in our world. Recent Harvard Medical Panel determined that we ought to use the description birthing people to describe those who get pregnant and give birth because, you know, Not everyone who gets pregnant and gives birth is a woman or identifies themselves as a woman. And this is the kind of stuff the leading intellectual institutions or educational institutions in our world are teaching. The complete disregard for basic biology that we're all supposed to just sort of play along with is part of the shifting ground beneath our feet. The world is changing. And sometimes you stand back and you survey the landscape of, of all that is happening in our, in our day. And you wonder if there's anything stable at all. The accepted norms of what's right and what's wrong have been turned upside down. And it would be easy for us to get worked up in anger or maybe to approach all of that with fear. In the midst of all these changes. But this psalm reminds us that we are not those who fear. Even when it seems as if the earth is giving way. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way. That's the kind of peace we have as Christians. I think sometimes we have the wrong picture of peace. And what it means to experience peace. The picture of peace for many Christians is associated with tranquil settings. This is the kind of thing you see on a wall calendar. There's a beautiful dew-covered meadow with the first light of day breaking. If it were a Bob Ross painting, there would be a few happy clouds painted in, sort of scattered throughout the painting. 
Or maybe we think of peace as something we experience in a serene lakeside setting. We've got our Bible open before us, a cup of coffee in one hand. Now we can experience the peace of God. And there is a kind of peace we experience in moments like that. But this psalm describes a different kind of peace. It's the kind of peace we experience in the midst of life's storms or troubles. It's the kind of peace we experience even though the waters roar and foam and the mountains seem to tremble. Do you know that kind of peace? Listen again to verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That word trouble is actually a plural. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in our troubles or in our times or seasons of trouble. That's what true peace looks like. It's the ability to remain calm in the midst of what feels like disaster. Over the holidays, I read a book entitled The Psychology of Money. The book deals not so much with the best investment strategies, but with what really drives the kind of decisions we make with our money. And the author uses the example of a fairly recent stock market crash or correction to illustrate the way our feelings sometimes dictate our decisions. And he points out that the way an investor behaved in the last few months of 2008 and the first few months of 2009 had far more impact on their life returns than everything they did from the years 2000 to 2008 leading up to it. If they simply remained calm and weathered, they would weather the storm quite well. The old quip that a pilot's job consists of hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror is, applies equally well to investing. It also applies to life. See, it's what we do in those moments of sheer terror. It's what we do when it seems like the earth is giving way or that the mountains are being toppled into the sea. That's where we experience the peace of God. We don't experience God's peace most deeply when in those seasons that we're on cruise control. We experience it most deeply in our times of trouble. So we may not have certainty about the future, but we ought to have confidence. And interestingly, that word confidence is a compound word. It, it combines two Latin words. The word con, which means with, and the word fide, which means faith. So to have confidence is to do something with faith. And when the Bible describes this, it's not sort of a general or vague sort of faith. God is the object of our faith. The reason we have confidence coming into an uncertain season is because God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble. You see the kind of difference this ought to make as we head into a new year? We don't know what this new year will hold. Scroll through the news headlines and you will find a mix of optimism and pessimism. There's optimism because of the potential the vaccines have to reduce the impact of COVID. But there's pessimism because there's already a, a new strain of the virus as viruses tend to do. They mutate over time. 
There's some optimism on the stock market. There's a bit of what was dubbed a Santa Claus rally in December, but there's also a lot of pessimism because we don't really know the full impact of COVID and what it has done to our economy, and we won't discover that until all the dust settles. So I'm not going to be able to pretend, or I'm not going to pretend to be able to predict what will happen in 2021, but what I do know is this. Therefore, we do not fear. We will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. So we have peace regardless of what might happen. Secondly, we can experience peace because of what is happening. And this is what we see in the middle section of the psalm in verses 4 to 7. Verse 4 marks a dramatic shift in the psalm. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. So we go from the raging and foaming waters of verse 3 to the river and streams that wind their way through the city of God. It's quite a contrast, and we are meant to see it that way. In fact, the entire second section of the psalm is a contrast with the first section. The first section deals with the seemingly shifting sand that we experience in our world, the earth moving beneath our feet. But this section reminds us that there is no movement where God dwells. Speaking of God's dwelling place, verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The earth might be moved, but where God dwells cannot be moved. In verses 4 to 7, give us a bit of a glimpse behind the curtain. So we know what is happening on earth, or at least we think we know what is happening on earth because of our experience in it. But there is a greater reality because of what is happening in heaven. And verse 6 helps us understand these two realities simultaneously. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. See, the nations rage. The kingdoms that seem so secure totter and topple and fall. There's constantly upheaval in our world. There's political upheaval. There's environmental disasters. There's social unrest. But none of that is a threat to the sovereign rule of God. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah that I'm sure I've pointed out to you before, but it's such an important passage. I want to look at it again. Isaiah chapter 6 contains Isaiah's famous vision. And the passage reads like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's such a stunning vision that when Isaiah sees it, he's completely wrecked by it. And he calls out, woe is me for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's reminded of his sinfulness in the presence of God. And what we ought to take from Isaiah's vision is the truth of both what he saw and when he saw it. Now, what he saw would be hard to miss. In his vision, he sees the Lord seated on a throne. 
And he's, he understands in a way that he never had before what it means to say that God is king and rules over all. But just as important as what Isaiah saw is when he saw it. And this would be easy to miss or pass over. I, Isaiah tells us that he saw his vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is that significant? Well, the historical background is that Uzziah was one of Israel's good kings, at least for most of his reign. He was actually Israel's longest reigning king. He ruled over Israel for 52 years. And those 52 years were good years for Israel. They enjoyed peace and prosperity. Now, Israel's history was a roller coaster ride. But during the reign of Uzziah, Israel enjoyed an extended time of both peace and prosperity. And so the end of Uzziah's reign, the end of his life, foreshadowed the end of all that peace and prosperity. What word of assurance did people need more than to remember and be reminded that God is on the throne? He's the king. Despite the political upheaval, despite the fact that the king that had brought them so much peace and prosperity was dead, God continues to reign and to rule. That's the message they needed to hear. And isn't that precisely the reminder we need right now? See, what Isaiah saw in his vision is exactly what is happening in heaven right now. God is seated on his throne. He's ruling over all. There's nothing that's taking place in the world right now that God is not sovereign over. And that ought to give us peace. There's more than that, that that should comfort and assure us from this part of the psalm. Verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Those words are repeated verbatim in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The idea is similar in verse 1 when it says that God is our very present help. In trouble, And the idea is not so much the immediacy of God's help that it comes right away, but that, his, but that he is present with us in the trouble. I touched on this a bit last week, but the promise of God's presence is the thing that ought to assure us in all our circumstances. This is God's promise. I will be with you. This is God's promise to his people. When God called Moses to lead his people, Moses responded with fear and God assured him with the words, but I will be with you. When Moses died and Joshua was to take over from him and Joshua was afraid, God's words to Joshua were, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This was the promise of the incarnation. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear, his, uh, and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is the promise that Jesus has given us. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end 
of the age. The presence of God is our comfort in times of trouble. I love the way Dale Ralph Davis put it when he said, in all their dilemmas, quandaries, and crises, this has ever been the word of God to, the, of the covenant God to his servants. But I will be with you. Basically, God has nothing more or else to offer you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your question about the details. It provides only the essential. Nothing about when or how or why, only the what or, or better the who. But I will be with you. And that is enough. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And those and the two truths that ought to be firmly planted in our hearts and minds are number one, that God is on the throne ruling over all that takes place in the world. And number two, that this same God is with us in the midst of our troubles. We can have peace because of what is happening. Third thing we learn from this psalm is that we can experience peace because of what will happen. And this is what we find in the final section of the psalm. Now, maybe this seems like a, a strange point because of the fact that verse 8 begins with the past. It says, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. So that verse points us to and instructs us to go back and, and look at, at, at the times God has acted in the past. But we're instructed to look back and remember what God has done so that we might understand what God will do in the future. So verse 9 then reminds us of God's enduring character. It says, He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now, sometimes we shy away from these kinds of descriptions of God. When nations are raging and committing atrocities, we are used to our politicians offering milquetoast platitudes. Oh, we find that kind of behavior to be unacceptable. World peace achieved, right? But what kind of God do we have? Well, he's the kind of God who makes war to cease to the ends of the earth. He's the kind of God who breaks the bow and shatters the spear of the warrior. He is the kind of God who burns the chariots with fire. God will take decisive action to set everything right in our world. And then verse 10 directs us to what we ought to do now in light of the future. And the beginning of verse 10 is one of those oft quoted but usually misunderstood statements of Scripture. Be still and know that I am God is how the verse begins. Now we all know what that means, right? It means that we ought to find a quiet place and we ought to quiet our hearts and be still before the Lord so that we can hear what it is that he wants to say to us. Now, I'm not ridiculing that as a practice. That, in fact, is something that we ought to do. But that's not what this verse is teaching. There are different ways to say, be still. So when our kids were little and something important was about to happen or there was something they needed to listen to, we would use the German word hoish. Hoish. The show's about to begin or something like that. 
But there are other times, you know, like maybe when you're taking a road trip and there's like all this bickering going on in the back, you say it differently. Be quiet. Settle down back there. That's more the idea of verse 10. Now, it's either being spoken to the nations, the nations that are raging back in verse 6. And God says to them, be still. Stop all your loud boasts and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Or if it is spoken to us, it's more like take a chill pill and understand that I am God. The nations can do what they want. But when I put a stop to it, it will be done. I will be exalted among the nations. So stop fretting and freaking out. And that's my paraphrase, just to clarify. But I think the primary aim of verse 10 is actually directed towards the nations. Those nations that are rebelling against God. That's who he says, be still and know that I am God too. I think you find a parallel to this in the book of Exodus. The phrase, you shall know that I am the Lord gets repeated numerous times as God prepares to free his people from their slavery in Egypt. So in Exodus chapter seven, God says this to Moses, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Later in that same chapter, we read, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. In Exodus 14, we read this, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And again, later in that chapter, just before they cross the Red Sea, it says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. You see, verse 10, be still and know that I am God is meant to comfort us, but it's not meant to comfort everyone. In fact, it is a word of judgment against those who oppose and rebel against God. Some of you will remember the worship song, Come, Now is the Time to Worship. The chorus of that song says, One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Now, I'm not meaning to be theologically nitpicky, but there is a lot wrong with the last line of that chorus. Apart from the issue of who does the choosing, which is not my focus, it's not true that those of us who confess Jesus as Lord now have a greater treasure than those who will confess it on the day of judgment, that they have a lesser treasure. They don't have any treasure at all. Be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations, is something God says and speaks in judgment. And the point is that there will come a day when all of the raging seas will be quieted. All of the things that seem to threaten us will be stopped. All of the nations that rebel against God will come to an end. And in that day, God will be praised by all. 
Listen to these familiar words from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there will come a day when everything that is wrong in the world is set right. There will come a day when the kingdom of God will come. There will come a day where God's name is hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. There will come a day where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So even in the midst of an uncertain world, we can experience the peace of God because of what will happen, because of what God will do in the end. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the security that we have. So let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the new year that is before us. So we do not know what this year might hold. We don't know how we are going to fare in 2021, Lord, but you do. You hold all things together. And God, even if the mountains were somehow to be thrown into the sea, even if the, 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 the earth gave way, we know that you are our present help in our trouble, that you are with us. And so, God, we have confidence and we place our confidence and trust in you and in nothing else. And we pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with these truths, that you would imprint them upon us so that we might live rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.